Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's really nice to be back uh, doing our uh, Remember What's Next podcast. Um, we, uh, I'm so excited today. We are going to talk about the um, history of Sephardic Judaism and Jewry. Um, we are just sort of getting ourselves organized to begin. Um, this is really a topic that I've always wanted to learn more about, certainly since I became more involved in the Jewish community. You know, one of the things that I never really, um, I never really understood was I could, you know, I could write a, a test on 85 pages of halacha, but I didn't really understand why people didn't speak to each other. <laughs> so for me, uh, understanding the history behind not just the different denominations, but the different um, histories of parts of our family, which is really what we are, um, is really important to being able to understand where we are now and what are some of the things that we struggle with that we could do better um, and where are we trying to get to, you know, echad as, as one, as a community. And so um, Sephardic Judaism is really something that I think in the most part in North America, so many people... You might know someone who's a Spartac Jew, but generally you're um, more involved or influenced or more visibly seeing the Ashkenazi world. So I'm really excited that we're going to look at this and, and talk about it a little bit more. So, uh, Ken, where should we start? Where, what should we talk about first? <laughs> um, probably should define our terms. Great. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I mean, I hate labels. I have this shirt from... Uh, a guy in California who's a cousin. I'm an Ashkesfard, ultra conservative, orthodox, reform, whatever. I don't like labels. I'm all for one. Hey, I uh, want that shirt. <laughs> and, uh, I always say when I'm talking about differences amongst not just Ashkenazim and Sephardim, I say all differences are really uh, an unfortunate outcome of us living separated, scattered around the world in diaspora. The reality right. is uh, that we're really part of one people. We have one common ancestry. And even though some of us who ancestors came from Eastern Europe and Poland lost some of their melanin, um, the reality is even genetically it's and, shown. And the good cooking. Yeah, and the, yeah, that's a funny joke about that. Like a, a, a Yemenite family or a Sephardi family went to be dude because they went to an Ashkenazi house for a meal and the food had no taste. <laughs> They went into isolation, you know, for basically the reason where you be doing it's isolation for COVID. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Ashkenazi food might not be. But, but genetically, it's actually been demonstrated through DNA testing because what really unites people, you know, all human beings are about 99.9% identical, but genetically. Um, but really, all Jewish communities around the world are very closely related to each other once you get past the skin, hair, and eye color. Mm. But um, as a byproduct of the destruction of the first temple and the second temple. Uh, the first temple's destruction two and a half thousand years ago led to the creation of the first diaspora community, which was basically Bavel, Babylon, Iraq of today. That's the origins of the, the first diaspora community. But with the um, once you get to the second temple period onward, we never have a period of time after the first temple where all the Jews are living in the land of Israel and they wow. scatter all over the place. 
um, we tend to divide them up into two big groups. We already talked about Ashkenazi Jews and the word Ashkenaz, it's debated somewhat the origins, but is referred to Jews living in Europe in the Christian uh, part of Europe, because the most Western part of Europe is gonna be Spain, Sfarad. Whereas the other term we like to use is Sephardic, which is a little bit of a misnomer and, and not really understood by people, but mm -hmm. the word Sephardi, which is, goes back, it's mentioned fairly early on in Jewish sources, but no one's exactly clear geographically what they're talking about. But insofar as you refer to Spain, we're talking about the Jewish community of Spain, which was a community which actually dates to, we're not sure the origins, but even possibly pre-Roman Empire, certainly during the Roman Empire when the Romans controlled the entire Mediterranean, was a Roman-controlled sea at the height of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Um, after the collapse of the Roman Empire was controlled by the Visigoths, one of these Germanic tribes that like marauded through Europe and settled. But then in 711, which is a date that all the uh, all, all Americans remember because of the convenience store, uh, <laughs> the Muslims crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and uh, conquered what's Spain, Al-Andalusa, as they called it, and will wow. control it till 1492. That, that fateful day with the expulsion, Christopher Columbus, the fall of Granada, it all happens in one year and it's all connected to each other. But that term Sephardi is generally used to refer to Jews and it's more, uh, I would say micro or term to refer to Jews who have their origins in Spain, which was before the expulsion, the largest Jewish community in the world and the center of the Jewish world, culturally and economically. But also now it's kind of, is used to refer to in a broadest sense basically anyone's not Ashkenazi, right. Uh, right? you know, like really uh, Middle Middle Eastern Jews are called Sephardim. And there is, as we'll discuss hopefully later, some, there is connection to Spain, mostly post 1492, but it's actually a little more complicated than that because we really need other terms like Mizrahi might be a better right. term, which is actually Mizrah is, is East, but it basically refers to Jews living in the Islamic Arab world, many of whom had never had any connection with Spain whatsoever. Mm. So the broadest term that we divide the Jewish world is Ashkenazi and Sephardi, but it's actually a lot more nuanced than that. Does, is Sephardi a Hebrew word? Well, it's the word for Spain, Sfarad. Um, it's oh, not, a, no. it's written in, but there's several, I was looking etymologically, I was I remember looking this up and they think it's based on this word or that word. I don't believe it has any intrinsic meaning in Hebrew. I could be wrong on that. I'm pretty sure it's just a term used to refer to the, uh, the uh, Iberian Peninsula, which by the mm -hmm. way, isn't just Spain, it's also Portugal. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so how did we end up there? <laughs> How did we get to Spain and Portugal from, you know, we know that the Ashkenazim were the ones that went north to the Rhine and Germany. How did we end up in Spain and when did we get there? So right, again, so, Rome? so I said there is some evidence that there was Jewish communities possibly scattered throughout like North Africa. Also, there was an empire called Carthage which the Romans managed to dispatch in the mid second century. And during the Punic Wars, they got rid of them, but there was probably Jews living out in North Africa before Islam. Uh, but there were certainly Jews living in Spain. Again, we don't have exact, we don't have records. There weren't any people like Benjamin of Tudelo who was traveling around the world, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and visiting various Jewish communities. We don't have any such thing going back, you know, 2000 plus years. But 
there may have been a Jewish community pre-Roman Empire. As the Roman Empire expands to the height of its power, which is generally the time of the Roman Emperor Trajan in the year 117 of the Common Era, you know, Jews always looking for greener pastures, economic opportunities, were always the big middlemen. We always we expanded with the expanding Roman Empire, which, which will include Spain, France, all the way up Germany to the Rhine, even to England, up northern England. I don't know if there's Jews in England, but um, so Jews will be settled there, but the real explosion of Jewish community is going to be post-711. Post-711, when you have the Omayyad dynasty that will rule in Jerusalem from basically six, you know, but basically the mid-seventh to the mid-eighth centuries, and then will cease to exist in Jerusalem. The other guys who build the Dome of the Rock and the, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the, on the Temple Mount. But the, that, that, uh, the, the eighth to the eleventh centuries in Spain is basically Omayyad controlled Spain. And even though they're, they're Muslims, they're Sunni Muslims, uh, they were very tolerant. When I say very tolerant Islamic uh, law, this is something that's not talked about because you can't politically correct, but everyone should Google the term Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. Dhimmi Tude is, a, is institutionalized Islam being a religion like Judaism, which is also has laws that deal with everything. There's no difference in Judaism between temporal law and religious law, laws of property, ownership, Shabbat, Kashrut. They're all covered by Torah. Islamic law, Sharia has the same thing. It has religious law and, and laws of property and damages, and you name it, very, very, very much similar to Judaism in a lot of ways. But non-Muslim monotheists, of which Jews and Christians fall into that category, Dimi, are considered protected people. It's a misnomer because it really is sort of like second class person, meaning because you worship one God, we don't kill you or sell you as a slave or something. You can practice your religion. Of course, if you pay a special jizya, you know, a poll tax in a humiliating way, but you're a second class citizen. You're subject to all kinds of restrictions. It's sort of like a form of Islamic apartheid. There's many, many restrictions. People should, do, I don't want to waste time going to dimitude. We could discuss that later um, in a different Was talk. that what was going on in Spain at that time? Well, that's the thing. The, the, over? That's the thing. The the Omayyad dynasty was very lax in its, in its uh, dimmy observance, allowing the minority communities, Jews and Christians, to do quite well in, in all spheres. And what you're going to get is a tremendous economic opportunity, which is a great symbiotic relationship for Omayyad Spain. You're going to have an incredible cultural cross-pollinization. It's really going to be the most happening in the Western world, most culturally advanced in so many literature and philosophy, you know, mathematics, astronomy, medicine, you name it, that this is going to be the place. What people don't appreciate is when the Christian world was back in the dark ages, which may not have been quite as dark as people think, but still pretty backward, uh, you know, a, you know, a thousand years plus, the, 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 the most enlightened places to live would have been a place like Islamic Spain. Wow. Um, and it was, it hadn't, it didn't, it wasn't because of Islam, it was because you had a lot of different ethnic groups in one place under a stable, tolerant, political regime, when you have political stability, historically, like even during the Roman Empire, at the height of its power, you could do a lot worse than live under the domination of Rome, provided you behaved yourself and gave up on your independent aspirations. Uh, but you got all the benefits of a stable economic growth, Roman roads, you know, you've got the peace and quiet. We don't appreciate how, you know, how tumultuous and violent much of the world has been for most of human history. So, uh, in that situation, we have stability and prosperity. You have, you know, it's just great for the growth of culture and the growth of science and knowledge and, and uh, 
and the, the Islamic world was the people who carried on much of the classical knowledge of the Greek Roman world that was largely lost to Europe and had to be reintroduced later, also largely by Jews into Europe through the church later in history. And what did the Jewish community look like in those situations? Again, when they're in a situation where there's relative religious tolerance, a tremendous mixing of cultures and ideas, um, do the Jews somewhat keep their Judaism? Or is this another situation where we start to disappear into the larger, broader cultural context of that world? Yeah, so it's, it's similar to like the story before Purim of the Jews were very comfortable not necessarily assimilating. We make a mistake of thinking it's an all or nothing thing. We've had multiple situations of Jews being basically comfortably Jewish uh, because it was good Jewish infrastructure in terms of Torah learning schools, mm -hmm. you name it, for religious tolerance and basically freedom to operate. Um, uh, so it wasn't like a, a state of persecution or massive ignorance and assimilation like you get Jews coming into America between 1882 and 1914. Uh, but also, it's one of the great patterns that we can never be allowed to stay long term in, in any place in diaspora. It's one of those great proven rules of, of supernatural rules. Anyone else would be allowed to stay and disappear and assimilate like everyone else does. But because we have a destiny and, and requires us to eventually come back to Israel, precisely in places we get most comfortable, which, again, doesn't mean most assimilated, but just comfortable being Jewish. Right. And Jews could achieve, you know, those are the places where you're going to see a lot of persecution. So what you don't have at least as far as I'm aware, is a, a massive amount of assimilation. Hmm. Um, you do have persecution off and on way before the expulsion, which is going to lead to a lot of Jews converting out of Judaism to Christianity under, under, by, under duress. Um, but Jews will achieve tremendous positions of power. You know, you have people like Hastai Ibn Shaprut, who was a, an advisor and the commander of the armies of, of the Caliph of Cordoba. Hmm. And you have people, you know, you, you, Jews always, because we are... Uh, tend to be, we have international connections, we tend to be, you know, very creative, driven, hardworking, and well-educated. It's one of the great subplots of Jewish history that Jews have always been employed uh, by various rulers, empires, kings, bishops, nobility, you know, to, to do work for them, to do stuff for them. And in a world where a good percent of the world is not so ambitious or so well-educated, you know, Jews have always been able to sort of have an edge in that area. So they, they rose to tremendous positions. Not all Jews were wealthy and powerful in Spain, for sure not, or Portugal, but they certainly rose to positions of great influence and power. And, and many of the cities of Spain had, you know, large Jewish communities, beautiful synagogues. Uh, Jews were a substantial part of the minority. There were communities in Spain, like shtetls in Eastern Europe, where the community was either entirely Jewish or majority Jewish, the smaller locales. But you had major Cordoba and all these different places, like where Maimonides is from, had a like huge Jewish community. Do we know why people chose to either go to Portugal and Spain or to the Rhine? Do we know what the decision was based on at that time, or were those different periods of history and depending on what was going on? Those were two different worlds. There's actually a border, pretty much, not like a border crossing, but you know, in the eighth century. Charles Martel, the father of Charlemagne at the Battle of Tours or Poitiers stopped the Islamic expansion into France or the Pyrenees. Had they lost that battle and the, the, and the Muslims had conquered France, they probably just kept going and probably extinguished Christianity. I don't know. So those were different parts of the world. It wasn't, you could, again, we just assumed you could freely travel from one place to another. The Jewish communities of, of Provence, you know, Southern France, and even where Rashi is near Paris, places like that, 
um, were much smaller communities living in much more tenuous and difficult situation. Mm -hmm. You know, you had crusades mm -hmm. way before you had open persecution of Jews in, in Islamic Spain, in Islamic, uh, really in, in Christian reconquered Spain, which is hundreds of years later, you had, you know, open attacks against Jews during the crusades and, and you know, after 1095, 1096. So economically, politically, in every way, as I always tell people, I would have much rather lived as a Jew in the, you know, is Islamic world until about a surf for sure until about a 900 years ago, things start to change in the Crusades for some for the Middle East somewhat because of instability and, and the Muslim world becomes more reactionary. But in Spain, it stays a little more normal for a longer period of time, although already by the time of Maimonides, you have invasions into Spain, we're talking about the eighth to the 11th century and 11th century is when everything's changing. The end of the 11th century is the Crusades, and the 11th century in Spain is the invasion, the Almohadi invasion, which is a Berber kingdom in North Africa and Morocco that will conquer most of Al Andalusa. And there being fanatical Muslims, it'll be, it'll be much harder for Jews. And many of them, like Maimonides' family, will leave. He's from Cordoba. The family will flee uh, Almohadi's persecution and, and, and end up back, you know, eventually in Israel and then in, in Cairo, which is he's sort of reenacting what's going to happen to a lot of the Sephardic Jews when you fast forward to 1492 and they'll flee en masse and do similar things looking for greener pastures. In that case, not getting away from, you know, radical Islamic persecution of al-Mohadis, but getting away from Christian persecution under Ferdinand and Isabella. Wow. And in terms of the, so that Sephardic community you're saying was really, you know, built strong and existed from the eighth century to the 11th century. That's what you're saying. So that's, a, yeah. first of all, that's a long time for Jews to age. be living in a really somewhat secure situation. And then in the 11th century, you said different things started to change. So was there a catalyst for things to change or it was just sort of the natural tide of, you know, shifts of politics and leaders and things like that? Was there a catalyst for things to start to change? And is that what then led to say, you know, all the Spanish expulsions. And when did this yeah. start? I mean, early on at that period of time, it's like I said, invasions of other Islamic dynasties. You know, the, the Islam is not monolithic. They're always fighting amongst each other and killing each other and vying for power. We're not talking about just Shiites and Sunnis, you know, different dynasties. We don't know anything Islam. about Jews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's history of Islam. Uh, so in that case, you know, one thing about history is nothing stays, nothing stays static in history. You know, things, empires rise and fall, certain patterns always repeat themselves. The problem is when you're at the top, the only place to go is down and all empires have their rise and all empires and civilizations have their decline and their fall. Um, but, but you have, uh, with, the with the conquest of Spain will begin the reconquest of Spain. You know, like the second you're born, you start to die. You know, it's like the two things are not, one's not waiting suddenly one day. It's going to be hundreds of years of, remember, Spain is not a united kingdom. Uh, there's different Christian kingdoms that slowly start to expand. And as the power of the Islamic Spain will decline, it'll, and the power of basically finally Ferdinand and Isabella of, of, of Castile and Aragon, two kingdoms in Spain, unite through marriage and through alliance to reconquer Spain. So they will, you know, continue a process that may have began initially with, you know, Islamic persecution of more fanatical Muslims against Jews, but continue on 
several hundred for hundreds of years later with uh, with you know Christian persecution of Jews. But another thing is that people don't appreciate is today you know pre Holocaust like ninety percent of the Jews in the world are probably Ashkenazi. Even post Holocaust, it's probably about eighty five to eighty percent of the Jews in the world are still Ashkenazi. They estimate in, I don't know what was like, it in what was it during that golden age. Yeah, I'm saying a thousand before a thousand years ago, there's a lot less Jews in the world, but the vast majority of Jews were, were living in that. I'm only use the word Sephardi again because there were the more Mizrahi Jews between living in Spain, North Africa, and the Middle East, and the oldest Jewish communities like Babylon, Persia. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of Jews, first of all, it's not so easy to, you know, like. It, to travel, you know, we can tra- we could travel around the world in a day today, but right. traveling was not an easy thing to do. It was dangerous and very time consuming and difficult. Um, so most people didn't, took a long time to get far from home. So the smaller Jewish communities that lived in the heart of the Ashkenazi world, you know, in Southern France, especially and in Germany on the Rhine, were communities that, that based themselves going back very early in history to the time of the Roman Empire, again, and possibly before but they were much smaller. There just was not hmm. the same, there was not the same economic opportunities. The conditions there were not as good. And you'll see what happens fast forward past the expulsion from Spain when that community, which was the center of the Jewish world, which had, we don't even know how many Jews lived in Spain. I've, I've seen the estimates. I've done a lot of research on it. And you know, people, there's the low end of a hundred thousand, there's the high end of three, four hundred thousand wow. Jews. But you talk about a world Jewish population going back um, a thousand plus years ago that was less, far less than 2 million people. You know, maybe a little, maybe about a million Jews in the world. The Jewish population got very close. I mean, the world's population was much, 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 much smaller than it is today. The world didn't hit 1 billion people, they estimated until the mid 19th century. So a million Jews, you know, a thousand years ago is a lot more than a million Jews today by many fold, but it's still a lot less Jews than were living in the Roman Empire before all the persecutions and, and Babylon, when there may have been six to eight million Jews 2,000 years ago. Wow. So, between all the Jews being killed out by revol- revolts against Rome and dislocation and persecution, all things that happened, let's say you had like a million Jews in the world, but the majority of those Jews, the vast, vast, vast majority, there may have been in the in what was truly Ashkenazi world, in the tens of thousands, maybe you know, 30, 40,000 Jews living in what would be Christian Europe. Wow. All of it. Once, once Spain, you know, collapses 1492 and the Jews move and these Sephardic Jews will move to many different places we should talk about in detail, but uh, Jews and, and Jews are starting to be, we talked about this previously, persecuted in a lot of Western European countries, excluding Spain, of course, but France, England, Germany, uh, the Jews will migrate to Poland and then you'll see the same sort of explosion of population, which is a combination of a lot of Jews migrating to a place where there's opportunity and stability. So are and you it, saying that this, most of the Sephardi world at, during 1492 then moved to, that's what became the Polish empire that we talked about in terms of no, no, Judaism? No, How no, does that work? I'm, I'm trying to understand the timeline. No, most did not. I'm saying it's the whole migration to the East is the Jewish population of Western Europe, Ashkenazi Jewish population, excluding Spain, moving to the West, out of places like England, out of places like France, out of places like Germany, already going back, you know, a thousand years ago, maybe going back, you know, 800, 700 years ago, that community was larger than 30,000 Jews by then for sure. And once it's settled, Jews, the Jewish birth rate will combine with people migrating in, will the population will grow huge to 
you know, 5.5 million Jews in the, you know, in the 19th century. That's tremendous. But for the Sephardim, you know, excluding things like the Almohades persecution, you have a process of several hundred years of reconquest of Spain. The problem with religious wars is people's primary focus, especially in Europe at this time, is religion. And we're kind of sandwiched between. And, you know, when you have like his most Catholic majesty fighting non, non-Christians, you're not going to be looked at really well. The Christian world has had a long history of deep animus, superstition, and hatred of Jews, going back to accusations of well poisoning and Christ killing. So there was, but pr- being practical, and again, this is a huge topic, but, you know, the Christian world was happy to use, as Spain has reconquered territory, they were happy to make use of Jews to organize the territory they reconquered. You know, the same Jews who could work for the Muslims and being tax collectors and all the other things that Jews did could do the exact same thing for uh, their Christian overlords now. Um, But what you will see starting easily 100 years before the um, final expulsion of 1492, you'll see um, open persecution of Jews and forced conversion of Jews under fanatical Christian like leadership often not necessarily the king or queen but like priests crazy like is this the first time we're seeing forced conversion in the way that it shows up in in this way like have we i I know like they wanted to get rid of us but was there ever the same level of just wanting us to all convert to christianity um as there was in 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 spain at that time yeah there's nothing like there's nothing even the muslims didn't when they conquered and they're the ones who will overrun most of the jews of the world will end up in islamic controlled these aren't remember the countries of today were created by the british and the french between the end of world war one and world war two so these are islamic empires uh or caliphates or whatever you want to call them back then um but the muslims were not really big into uh i mean technically forced conversion is not something you're not supposed to do in islam and it actually wasn't even so expedient for them to do because if you stayed a dhimmi they could tax you and that and that mm. poll tax was a huge source of income mm. for the Islamic world. So it was advantageous world, so. for you to stay Jewish. Yeah, because... but, but there's a lot of speculation right. that, that many many Jews did convert in, in the Islamic control. A because of you know general persecution issues, but also to avoid paying the tax. <laughs> They've been crushed economically, so to escape escape that, so Jews would the Jews would convert for that. It's, it's if you think Jews didn't convert to avoid losing everything they owned, <laughs> you're sadly mistaken. And of course, it's happened many times throughout history. Right. Um, I'm not going to judge people because I'm not in their shoes, but right. but uh, but yes. But you don't have I don't I know of no instances, but where you have like the enforced mass conversion of an entire population before that time. I could be wrong, wow. but I know of none. But it wasn't just forced conversions. It was also explosions, open explosions of violence, of attacks against Jews, attacks in communities, pogroms, all the pogroms in Eastern European word, um, which will lead to migrations of Jews out of uh, places like Castile, uh, even a century before the expulsion. People like very probably Christopher Columbus's family. You know, who's very, very likely of Jewish ancestry, but probably his first language was Ladino, which was basically Judeo-Espanol, which is more or less Spanish written. I think it was written in Hebrew, like Yiddish was written in Hebrew. It's basically German with some Hebrew thrown in. Um, But it's like 14th century, the primary, it's a Romance language whose primary roots is 14th century Castilian Spanish. 
Uh, and that, according to some historians I read, was actually like Columbus's original mother tongue, even though he was Genoese from Italy, but that's not where the family was originally from. So you're going to have already explosions of persecution, but how we Jews learn to go, you know, we, we roll with the punches. So there's an explosion of persecution. There's maybe even thousands of Jews slaughtered in the community or expelled, but then things calm down again. But when you get to 1492, um, that's a very fateful year because the, the last Muslim stronghold, the Muslim control of Spain is contracted, 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 contracted till the city of Granada falls in 1492. Um, and now for the first time since 711, all of, all of the Iberian Peninsula is part of Spain, not including Portugal, uh, which was a separate kingdom not controlled by Muslims either, um, is now under Christian control. Hmm. And that's when you get for various reasons the the it's called the alhambra decree or the decree of expulsion which was issued on march 31st of 1492 jews were given six months till july 31st of 1492 to either convert or leave spain um and how many jews were left at that point well that's the thing it's a big debate how many jews were in spain but there was hundreds probably my opinion there was at least two hundred thousand jews left in spain and and possibly as many, I think it's high, maybe 400,000, but I think somewhere between maybe 300,000 Jews left in Spain, wow. many of whom, by the way, there's also a huge number of Jews, new Christians who had through previous persecutions and forced conversions and things had already converted to Christianity. The, wow. the, the Christians were very actively involved in trying to, conf- even if they didn't forcibly convert, convert Jews, you'd have situ- scenes of like, priests would come into the synagogue on Shabbat services and demand that everyone sit there and listen to a sermon on Jesus, that kind of stuff. So constant pressure. That's Uh, like the entire population of the Jewish population of Toronto is a little, I think over 200,000. So that's really like taking, like saying to the entire Jewish population of Toronto, like become Christian or convert or leave or get out. But, it's a, but again, you're dealing with populations that are much smaller. So it's like the Jewish population of Canada or wow. the Jewish population of America that had been there for a lot longer than Jews have been in Canada or America. These are Jews wow. who've been in the country for 700 years. I mean, the motivation for wow. the expulsion was, it's, it's nuanced. Part of it was that the Ferdinand and Isabella who are fanatically Christian, by the way, I've done a lot of research on this, both of whom had Jewish ancestry. Hmm. Their marriage was arranged by court Jews or court Jews who would converso Jews or court Jews who thinking that it'd be great to have part Jews, be good for the Jews to have part Jews running the country. Little, that didn't work so well. So wait, uh, just explain, define the term converso, just so we know. Converso is, is our Jews who had converted to Christianity, um, mostly to escape pressure or to further themselves, which is a common pattern. Um, or sometimes at the pain of death, Jews would do it, you know, convert or die. And some Jews chose to die and a lot would convert or lose everything, lose your house, lose everything you own, leave with the shirt on your back uh, or convert. People did under pressure. They go, you know what? I'll go back to being Jewish later. I'll secretly practice Judaism. Um, so you had a lot of new new Christians. Uh, so Fernand and Isabella were a, uh, one of the main motivations was to get rid of the, the practicing Jews so they wouldn't go after the former Jews and convert them back to Judaism. Another uh, another motivation was, as opposed to slowly milking Jews of their wealth, the, the cost of reconquest, of fielding the armies to fight the you know the armies of Granada. This is a common uh, pattern we see in history: is just expel Jews. We'll do like a massive fire sale on their property. So rather than taxing it slowly, just squeeze it out of them 
all at once because wow. Jews are given six months to leave, which means like you see this in the Holocaust, fire sale on all Jewish public and private property, incredible limitations like Jews were allowed to live, leave Germany with almost nothing. Same thing with uh, when leaving Russia, by the way, after the expo Jews left the Soviet Union, you know, you, but we'll throw them out. We'll keep everything they own, which is a very significant amount of wealth. We'll take all their communal property. To, until today, there are many buildings in Spain that were promised Jew, Jewish publicly owned property, like synagogues that are now churches. I mean, it speaks to such a shocking acquiescence of the entire yeah. population that everybody would buy it. You know, if, yeah. you, if you tried, look, you, you would hope, but in many places, say in North America or in Western Europe, if you tried to do that to an entire population, you would have people that would at least say like, that's like, I wouldn't buy that. I'm supporting something like a racist policy. Um, I mean, but it's don't wild know. to think about the culture at that time that they'd be like, of course, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy that house. I don't care who got kicked out of it, especially if they're Jews, why would I care? Well, it's not, you know, it's very much a byproduct. First of all, you never know what's below the surface of your liberal democracies. This wasn't so long ago, you'd see the same thing happening in, in much of Europe when Jews were expelled from places like Poland and their property was taken over. Right. Um, but sure. certainly in a, in a Christian, fanatically Christian Spain, which is all pumped up having, where the whole focus is a religious conflict between, you know, Islam and Christianity, I'm sure that the, the energy level was quite intense and to be Jews in that situation was probably not very pleasant. Right. But um, they, you know, the treasurer of Spain at the time was Don Isaac of Barbanel, who was formerly the treasurer of Portugal, was an incredible personality, great scholar, tremendous, you know, tremendous financial mind. This is a classic example of using a bright Jew to run the financial affairs of an entire, you know, empire in a country. Um, Fernand and Isabella, they valued him so much. He was, they even, first of all, he offered a massive bribe to rescind the uh, expulsion order. Uh, they were gonna, we'll just pay you so much money. Like, and, and the story goes, it might be apocryphal, I don't know, but the Thomas de Torquemada, who at the time was like the leader of the Inquisition, a Franciscan, I believe he was, a monk, Dominican or Franciscan, I'm not sure. Uh, like I can, the story goes that he like, he, he storms into Isabella's, Isabella's a very fanatical, she may have been luckily Jewish, by the way, I'm not sure, but a very fanatical Christian. Her personal, con, her personal, uh, confessor was Hernando de Talavera, who was 100% Jewish and a fanatic Christian. Like I said, there's few things worse than Jews trying to out Gentile Gentiles and being a Gentile. Um, but the story is Torquemada like storms into the throne room, throws his cross at the queen and yells like Judas Iscariot sold out, sold out our Lord Jesus Christ for 400 pieces of you know silver. And you're about to do the same thing. Now, I don't know if the story is true or not. It's never been proven, but she apparently like backs off and says, okay, you Jews got to leave. But they valued they valued um, the, they valued him so much, Don Isaac of Barbanel, that they offered that he could stay, and he could even keep nine other Jewish families, so he'd have a minion. But everyone else had to go, and he chose to leave. And he he claims he left with three hundred thousand Jews, uh, which, by the way, the next day Christopher Columbus set sail with five Jews in his crew. Uh, there's a direct connection between Columbus's westward voyage and who he brought with him, which is another fascinating story that opens up a whole other chapter of Jewish history, where the Sephardi moved to next, um, both back to the back to the rest of Europe and North Africa and the Middle East and also to the New World. Um, but uh, how many Jews left? How many stayed? We don't know. The numbers. A lot of historians think about two thirds of the Jews stayed and converted. 
and continued to be persecuted, by the way. The Inquisition goes on and on, and thousands of people were killed. You know, you could, if Jews were found to do weird things, like they'd watch, do they eat pork? You know, are they coming to church? Stuff like that. If someone would rat on you, you can read yeah. the records of the Inquisition. I remember reading them in a library, testimony extracted often through torture. And at the end, you're found guilty where they would sentence you to death at what's called an auto de fe, an act of faith, at which point you had a choice of either being, you could at the last moment kiss the cross, in which case they would strangle you. They put a rope around your neck on the side, you turn a piece of wood and it's okay. quick, or they'd burn you alive. By the way, the last auto de fe, I believe, took place in Mexico City in 1824. The Inquisition followed Jews all the way to the New World, and 400, less, a little less than 400 years later, was still burning people at the stake. Crypto Jews for practicing wow. Judaism. But chances are the majority of Jews, uh, probably for lack of any other place to go, uh, stayed. A lot left. A lot went to Portugal, where, um, where five years later, the king of Portugal will forcibly convert them, all of them, the entire population. A lot of them will then head back to North Africa and the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And there's, a, there's another quote, which again, maybe it's not true or not, but it's supposedly from Bezid, the Sultan of Turkey, where he says, they tell me Ferdinand of Spain is a wise man, but he's a fool for he takes all of his treasure and sends it to me. Hmm. And the Ottoman Empire will take 70,000 Jews into the Ottoman Empire, which is huge, by the way. It controls, you know, that all part of Europe, which is Yugoslavia, the Balkans, Greece, not just what is today Turkey. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the great patterns, Ellie, in history is God says to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I always say having Jews living amongst you with freedom to operate is always a great symbiotic relationship where the host country benefits and the Jews benefit. Jews will pour back into the Ottoman Empire, including Israel and Spot in the 16th century, uh, will, uh, will become the largest Jewish community in Israel with 10,000 Jews living. And it's in a golden age of Kabbalah with, you know, the Vero and all that stuff is taking place there. Uh, but <laughs> the Ottoman Turkish empire will go in the next century to becoming the most powerful empire in the Western world. And Habsburg, Spain will go bankrupt. It's interesting having conquered and pillaged most of South and Central America of all of its wealth, nonetheless, it will go bankrupt twice in the 17th century, wow. Habsburg, Spain, in the 1500s, when it should have been the most super wealthy, powerful place. So, But a lot of those Jews, those Sephardic Jews who are really Sephardic Jews, will go back to places like Morocco, Tunisia, what is today Tunisia, Algeria, these were not countries back then, um, back to Israel, all the way back to Syria, Lebanon, what is today Syria and Lebanon, which wasn't then. Even some all the way back to Iran, although Iranian Jews are really not even, they have their own customs, they're a very separate community that goes really right. far back to the Purim story. And of course, to places like uh, Italy, uh, which could be the Columbus story, albeit a hundred years earlier, if that's where his part of his family's from, where his family's from, but to places like Greece, Thessaloniki, they often overwhelm the local Jewish population there. Hmm. Like many of these islands and places in Italy, for instance, you know, these other communities will come in and they'll become the majority population. So there's where you get the mishmash of, of, of uh, Mizrahi Jews who never left the Middle East with the Sephardic Jews. Um, many of them will take on the customs of the Sephardic community, which will become dominant. Interesting. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's a fantastic story. So that term is used now to refer to everyone in the Middle East, but it's interesting. Some of the people's names, like I know the rabbi of Gibad Zev, where I used to live, was named Yosef Tolidano and he was mm -hmm. Moroccan. But his name is taken from uh, Toledo in Spain. 
so they kept the name. Uh, Mizrahi is a common last name for, for uh, you know, Sephardic Jews. By the way, Ashkenazi. How do those communities like each other, the Mizrahi community and the Sephardi community? And, and what are the relationships when the Sephardim come from Spain after being exiled? What does that look like for the Mizrahi communities that absorb them? Do they welcome them with open arms or do they sort of like look at them with suspicion? How does that work? I'm sure not being a real expert on the, the nuances of all different communities, I'm sure it varied from place to place. I'm sure in communities that welcomed it a few Jewish refugees, it was probably fine. I'm sure in communities where suddenly they're invaded by, a it's funny, Australia is the same thing today. Australia had this massive influx of South African Jews hmm. to the point where I do missions of these women's missions, like the, you know, the, uh, the um, Momentum missions. And I have a bus full of women from Melbourne and there's like 15 women and 13 of them are South African. Wow. And the Australians, and I'm always making South African, I'm on the bus making, you know, doing my South African accent and making South African And the Australian, we're going, we're Australians. You know, like we're not all South Africans. <laughs> You're like, none of so, you are. <laughs> so and it wasn't not fighting, you know, they all get along fine, but there's right. a, I can, I'm sure there's a certain amount of tension and maybe resentment uh. that you're the you're the greeners, but you've kind of like swamped us. But of course, in a lot of places, there's significant communities that they were the, the, the local community was the majority community. Right. So it really depends on place to place, you know, where Actually, you Actually, I have an aside question, and maybe we'll do something on this the south african jewish community were they from ashkenaz or from sfard all lithuanians wow, all lithuanians so the most homogenous jewish community the most homogenous jewish community in the world is probably south africans okay we have to do a whole a whole yeah, thing yeah, yeah. on on this i've been like jewish 18 community. times i know it very well um yeah so so you get this mish this so, so the term sfardi you know in terms of there's like an, even in prayers today of nusach sfard which is the Sephardi uh, language used in prayer, but it's not even only used by Sephardim, it's also used by Hasidim. Right. In the Ashkenazi world, they use Nusach Sephard. Uh, and you have what is called Edot HaMizrach, which is a separate uh, Nusach, a separate huh. variation of the prayer. So again, that term Sephardi has many different meanings. Uh, but today, mostly today, it's used to refer to all those Jews who are now living in the Middle East or North Africa. Uh, but again, they too are a mishmash and the genetic, and it's very interesting, the genetic test they've done on like different Jews and communities, you know, that you know that, that they found just as Jews in general, although the Ashkenazi and Sephardi, even though the Ashkenazi might look like Europeans more than they look like their Sephardi cousins, uh, yet when they do the genetic testing, they find that the haplotype, like the genetic signature of where we come from ethnically, geographically is Middle Eastern. So too, when they did the tests on like, uh, like Lebanese Jews who claim to be like Aleppo and stuff like that, who are claimed to be communities that go back to Spain, they found out that they are actually more genetically closely related to other Jews from Spain who live in completely other parts of the world than they are necessarily right. to their fellow Mizrahi Jews who never left the Middle East because of their common genetic ancestry that goes That's back. interesting. They also found that here in North America because, and the reason I found this out was researching about my, my mother's family who are Akkadian. And so my mother's family, I, I found out that the Akkadians and the Cajuns, they've done genetic testing on Akkadians and Cajuns and found that they also have genetic markers of Jews from Morocco and Spain. Yeah, not surprising at all, which is a great lead into the other Christopher Columbus story. You know, Christopher Columbus of Cologne, of Genoa, Italy. I mean, what was he looking for? 
he was looking for a westerly route to the Far East. Hmm. I mean, the Far East was the great, getting out to the East, the Silk Road, which by the way, those same Israeli Jews will, it, nothing changes. They're always, always looking for greener pastures. As trade expands to the Far East, the Radonite traders, there's a lot of interesting, I saw think about how all the major rest stops along the route are six days apart if you're traveling by camel, going through, you know, Tujmekistan, Kazakhstan, to India, through, you know, all these places, all the way out to China, because a lot of the traders, a lot of the traders were Jewish traders. Wow. So they stop will, every six days. Yeah, we know Maimonides' brother, David, wow. you know, Maimonides, who started Cordoba and ended up in Egypt, he, he only started taking money for medicine when his brother David, who was a a guy read, who did these trade trips that took years to do that. These trips took years to you got out there and came back. He died on one of them and the family had no source of income. So my mom had to start charging for his, his medical uh, advice and, and help. Um, but you have traders going all along the Silk Road, all the way out to China. And even going back 800 years ago, plus they will establish a community in China in Kaifeng where they will settle. And, you know, you want, and they'll take, they'll take local Chinese women as wives who will convert. There was a small community we had in Giban Zev, I remember 20 something years ago, we had the last three or four women from Kaifang, they're ethnically Chinese. Yeah. They had to go through a conversion, although a, a, a pretty easy one. They immediately, one of them was cleaning her house. She got grabbed within like two months and put in a tour guides course because she was like one of the eight Mandarin speaking Jews, you know, Incredible. actually ethnically Chinese. Yeah, I saw something like that on, on the BBC about how the last of the Chinese Jewish communities were being persecuted in this day and basically disappearing that almost all of them now have been either they're either in hiding or they have these little synagogues that are at the top hidden parts of stores somewhere and that yeah there's no real and nobody really left. talks about what's going on in that community there's no real community left but these jews will get all the way out these with these iraqi jews especially will get they'll be in india mumbai goa There'll be persecutions mm -hmm. against them and go, which is a Portuguese trading. Whatever there's trade and opportunities, Jews will go. And then you have like the Sassoon family, which is huge. They're like the Rothschilds of the East. And they're out in Singapore and Thailand and in India and in they're all over the place. So that's that side. But you had to go through Islamic controlled territory and it was a long schleppy journey. So Columbus is looking for a westerly route to the Far East. Mm -hmm. And he takes five Jews uh, in his crew, one of whom, uh, Luis de Torres, had converted because Columbus set sail the day after the expulsion. Um, there's definitely a connection there. And he and one of, Luis de Torres, if I'm not mistaken, had converted to Christianity the day before, but he took him as a translator. He had a, a, Jake, a Jewish cook, a Jewish doctor, of course, translator. Um, and uh, he wanted the Torres because he, was, he, was a, he, he spoke many, he was a polyglot. He spoke many languages and he spoke Hebrew. And Columbus thought, you know, one of the things is he thought when you get out to the forest, he's going to find the 10 lost tribes of Israel and he has to have a Hebrew speaker to talk to them. He really thought that? Yeah, that's one of, that's one of the stories I've read about. Again, that's, this, 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 I've read a bunch of stuff about it, but one of the ideas was that's what he thought. The Torres was, by the way, the first person to settle in, in uh, San Salvador, which is the Dominican Republic of today, which is Columbus doesn't hit the mainland of North America. He ends up in the, in the Caribbean area. Um, but he opens up the door. It's interesting as God is slamming the door shut on that great diaspora community of Spain. But, and there could be a big, big break in the middle of many centuries, but he's really preparing to open up the final door for diaspora communities. And, you know, I'm not a prophet, but if I think the last great diaspora community for Jews before we all come back to the land of Israel, which is just around the corner, um, is, is North America. Europe is already shutting down. 
you know, Russia's shut down, you know, there's a few play, every, everything's been, North America still is a decently strong community and a lot of assimilation and issues, mm-hmm. but, you know, the original Jews to settle in the Western hemisphere are, are Jews escaping, are Sephardic Jews escaping primarily. Many of them stayed in Spain or, or fled Spain or came as Christians to Spain and, and then openly started practicing Judaism. The earliest Jewish communities are in places like the West Indies, in Kingston, Jamaica, in Curacao. Right. Um, you have these places like places off the coast of, you know, off the coast of, 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 of uh, Venezuela and Brazil. You had these, some of them were Dutch colonies because remember in the 16th to 17th centuries, there was an 80 year war because Habsburg Spain controlled what is all of Northern Europe. And they fought on and off a long war to gain independence. And Holland, which became a Protestant country and hated Catholic Spain, became a huge refuge for Jews. Mm-hmm. It was like the golden age of Jews in Holland. And Jews rose to tremendous positions of prominence, especially in things like the Dust West and East India companies, which are the big trading companies, because Teeny Holland was a massive uh, economic superpower, like Israel is, with like incredible navy, always challenging the British and always going after the Spanish. And a lot of these Jews will settle in these places. The Inquisition will follow them. They will try and go to places that are controlled by, um, you know, places like Holland was a much better, Dutch colonies were were much more uh, pleasant places to live than living in Spanish colonies. Like even New Amsterdam originally before it was New York was a Dutch colony. And then 17th century, the British took it over, even though Peter Stuyvesant, the the governor wanted, was an anti-Semite and wanted to throw the Jews out and persecuted them. The Dutch West Indies Company, which can really control all the economic life of New Amsterdam, put tremendous pressure on them. You're not touching the Jews. So they're able to stay. But, but these Jews will settle in places like Jamaica. Columbus got Jamaica as a reward for discovering the New World. And there's a really interesting book called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean by this guy Kritzler. It's, it's actually a very, he, he made the title to sell books like, you know, right. thinking of Jack Sparrow. <laughs> by the way, Jack Sparrow is extremely, extremely, extremely loosely based on, um, on, uh, on a, Jewish, a Jewish rabbi pirate who is based out of the, the Caribbean and, the, and, and Jamaica. And these Jews will go there to escape persecution, to find economic opportunity and religious freedom. Some, a lot of them will be successful at it, including settling in the South, in America, in Florida, New Orleans, all that area. There are the first two, 1776, there's like 2,000 Jews living in America. Wow. And they're all Sephardim, including people like, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Chaim Samuels, I think I'm the space of his name, I know, who basically bankrolled the American Revolution. But uh, they will use places like Jamaica, which is the wow. very as as pirate launching bases against Spanish and Portuguese shipping. So it was like a win-win. We get to pay these people back for what they did to us, and we get to get rich at the same time. Hmm. Um, so Haim Solomon, that was his name, Haim Solomon, under who was a, so a Spartan businessman. Who so it's a great, it's a really interesting story, and. Today, because so many Jews fled there, this this speculation. First of all, Spain, massive number of Spanish Jews have Jewish blood. Uh, I, mean, I think it was Bibi Netanyahu's father, Benzio Netanyahu, was probably was considered the greatest historian of of the Iberian Peninsula. And he had made some statement about like everyone in Spain who can trace their ancestry back like five hundred years has Jewish blood, but. Even in wow. South and Central America, they're estimating, you know, at least 20%. A lot of the population is indigenous native, but there's a lot of white settler population that at least today, at least 20% of the population of South and Central America has Jewish ancestry. 
And this huge crypto Jewish communities and these Jews, and some of them are trying to come back to Judaism now, even in, in the Southwest right. United States, even whole communities that have, and it's interesting, some of the names mm -hmm. that the new, the new Christians would take names, often very not Jewish names, they dump their Jewish names, but they would spell them differently. Sometimes they take like, you know, you know, like really Christian sounding names like Pablo Cristiani, who debates Nachmanides, right. who's a Jew, you know, right. Pablo but they'd say like Nunez, Perez, the difference was the Jewish names had an S at the end and not a Z. So when you oh, meet people who have the Spanish so they, name, they were kind the of S. coding it into their name. Yeah, like, so that's like the Jewish version of the name, but it's a really interesting story. So we ended up, so that that's the earliest the oldest synagogues, even, you know, in America, there, there, you know, is you have Sherry Israel, and which is in, in uh, lower Manhattan, was the oldest Jewish community established in the mid 17th century. But the oldest synagogue still in the original building from the mid 18th century is the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. That's the one that George Washington sent a letter to that it's the sons of Abraham should sit under their vine. He's, he's paraphrasing Isaiah should sit under their vine, under their fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, meaning America is going to be the land of tolerance for you guys and mm -hmm. prosperity. And it turned out to be the golden of Medina. Wow. But uh, yeah. I wish they would start reiterating that on the college campuses right now. <laughs> It'd be really nice to bring that back. Your religious coercion. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So interesting. Well, at least that quote saying that Jews wouldn't have to be afraid living there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, okay. So Sparty now is defined as what? So you said that a lot of the time we say that Mizrahi Jews are Sparty. Um, so how do we define Sephardic Jews now? I know that um, certainly in the Persian Jewish community, they would say they're Sparty. Um, well, they're not. That's what Persians are Persians. Persians are really Persians. So they wouldn't define themselves as Spartac Jews. They would say Persians. I, mean, I think you have to ask the people. They say, "My, I have, I have two. I have two kids married to Yemenites, and my Yemenite son-in-law, he says we're not Spartan. We're, we're Yemenites. Yemenites who have their own customs, their own Minhagim, wow, their own wild. version of Hebrew. So, so again, in the in, in the broadest use of the word, is anyone who is not uh, Ashkenazi, you could call Sephardi, but then some of these people will not will take umbrage at that and say, right. no, 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 that's not who I really am. <laughs> so again, it's it's a misunderstood term, and I, I prefer the term Edota Mizrach, the communities of the East, because it's plural, so there's different communities. It's not one. Just as Ashkenazim have many different Minhagim, you know, there's. Right. Litvach and there's Galicia and there's, you know, and there's German. So it's much more nuanced than that. But, you know, living amongst Arabs versus living amongst Christians is probably the broadest definition that you could use of, of the two terms for Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Today in Israel, you know, the by far the largest Sephardi community is in Israel, but still the, yeah. the majority of Jews all told, you know, it's interesting, people think that before the Russians came, and Russians are 20% of the population of Israel, Russian Jews, Romanians were the largest group of Jews in Israel, followed by Moroccans. Hmm. But in the entire Middle East, you know, you were, you weren't talking about tens of millions of, you know, millions and millions and millions of Jews living pre the expulsion, the ethnic cleansing, this, this tragic end to that story was between 48 and 67, with the rise of Zionism, and the birth of the state of Israel, and the rise of Arab nationalism, and the 48 War of Independence and 67 War, uh, the Middle East has been ethnically cleansed of 
something like about 750,000 Jews. I've even heard it quoted. Yeah, and who, by the way, lost a lot more property than the smaller number of Arabs living who today call themselves Palestinians, many of whom chose to leave. I'm not going to go into that now, but um, that's never talked about. These people were literally ethnically cleansed from their, their, these countries where these Jews were living in Iraq before the Muslims came to Iraq, going all the way back to the Babylonian exile two and a half thousand years ago, before Arabs were in that part of the world, yet they lost everything. It was a huge community, North mm-hmm. Africa, Morocco, big communities, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but again, even today, we're talking about the Sephardic world, maybe out of 14 million Jews, maybe maybe two and a half million of those wow. Jews, using the broadest definition of Sephardi, mm-hmm. including in Israel today, with all of its you know, uh, a little over 6 million Jews, still the vast majority of the Jewish population of Israel is, is Ashkenazi, is absolutely Ashkenazi. Fascinating, fascinating. And no one's, none of them are eating rice on Pesach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the problem. It's one of the reasons, one of the reasons I told my kid to marry, my kids to marry Sephardim in the broadest sense of the word was a, broaden the taste in food and the genetic pool. Amazing. <laughs> Wow, that's like, amazing. The first three it's listens the, so far. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's so fascinating. So maybe what we can look at in the coming weeks is I would love to look at um, Mizrahi Jews, like with the history of Mizrahi Jews, and then maybe we can do South Africa, which would be really interesting. I don't think okay. I've ever really thought about that because that really is a unique community. Um, I think it'd be and then, anyway, if also any wild. of the... Uh participants would have any things they want to hear yes about. that too if there's anything that comes up or anything that people want to talk about um certainly one of the things that i would love to hear more about also is if people are out there that are on campus or are uh, <clears throat> or are dealing with um you know claims coming at them around the history of, of the jews and israel um, and aren't sure about how to answer some of those questions, please send us your questions, send us what you're hearing, send us what you're seeing and the things you'd like us to talk about. Um, and hopefully we can address some of that stuff to, to help support and, and back people up. Um, okay, I think that's it for today. Wow, Ken, okay. thank you so much. It's fascinating. Thank you My everyone pleasure. for joining us. And uh, we'll pick it up again next week. Okay, everyone, have a good rest of the week. We'll see you next week. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 